0: This is a quick disclaimer, there are some adult themes in this episode, as usual there's nothing explicit, and you can check out the post on MythPodcast.com for more info. This week, on the Myths and Legends podcast, we're starting the Epic of Gilgamesh, a story from ancient Mesopotamia, and if you think your job is rough, hopefully you don't have a hairy naked man leaping majestically through your office with his gazelle friends. Then, on the Creature of the Week, it's a creature that lives in the dark forest who can kill you with a look. And he's probably the nicest guy you'll never meet. This is the Myths and Legends Podcast, episode 54A. Did we just become best friends? This is a podcast where I tell stories from folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. This is, far and away, the oldest story we've talked about on this podcast. It's set in the third millennia BC, so over 4,000 years ago. For some frame of reference, the Trojan War, which we're just getting to in the Greek stories, is set around the 13th or 12th century BC, making the Trojan War about 1,000 years more recent than today's story. Today's story is set in Mesopotamia, often called the Cradle of Civilization. Mesopotamia is in the Middle East, but more specifically, in modern-day Iraq and Kuwait, Mesopotamia literally means between two rivers, due to it largely being between the Tigris and the Euphrates. The story today was relatively unknown for years and years in the West. In fact, it wasn't until the 1800s when it was found carved in stone tablets. The Sumerians in ancient Mesopotamia are suspected to be the first literate culture in the area, but it's so far back that we just don't really know. The story is probably older than 4,000 years, from an oral history that might have predated the Sumerians, but we just don't know because they didn't leave written records. The epic famously refers to the Great Flood, something a lot of ancient world texts talk about, including the Bible. And if you're familiar with the Bible, the story is somewhere in the biblical timeline between Noah and Nimrod. Anyway, I like to weave descriptions of the culture and society into the story now, so we're just gonna get started. Trapper had been slogging through the hot, dry wilderness all morning, when he saw the trees up ahead. In the middle of summer, this was one of the few places not scorched, and he hoped he had caught something. Ten minutes later, he stood looking over the ruins of a trap. It was one of his. It had been triggered, of course, and it had caught something. A rabbit, maybe. But the rabbit had gotten away, and smashed the trap. Which was strange. It wasn't eaten. There wasn't any blood or anything. Then the trapper boy heard chewing. He gripped his spear. It was on the other side of the bush. Something was chewing on the grass. He rolled out a lion or a wolf, but the boy could hear it snorting. He gripped his spear tighter. He had to drop on it. This, at least, would be a way to make up for what he lost in the trap. He took three deep breaths and burst through the bush. It was not a gazelle. There, squatting in the tall grass and eating the tall grass was a large, naked man. He had a hairy chest and back. He looked like one giant hunched ball of muscle that was munching on grass. The boy stopped short of stabbing the man with the spear, and both he and the man stood there frozen. Both were staring wide-eyed at each other, and the young man didn't really know what to do. This large, muscular man could kill him with one swipe of his hand. Then the young man gulped and made up his mind. He knew what he had to do. They both stared at each other for approximately five more seconds, before screaming and running away in the opposite directions. It was mid-afternoon when the boy got back to his hut. His father was there already, skinning the rabbits he had caught in the morning. "'Nothing at all?' the father asked his son when he saw his empty hands, but the young man didn't respond. He just walked past his father and sat huddled in a corner. The father shrugged and went back to work. Over the next several days, the young trapper saw way, way too much of the large, muscular, hairy, naked man. When the trapper went to the watering hole, he was there. When the trapper checked his traps, he was there. When he was walking the fields, he would see the man running through the fields with a herd of gazelles, his back hair majestically flowing in the wind. The man was wild, muscular, scary, and everywhere. Finally, The young trapper broke down and told his father that everywhere he looked was this large, hairy, naked stranger, and it was really starting to stress him out. Meanwhile, the guy had the body of a god, and it was only a matter of time until he attacked the trapper and his father. The father smirked. He knew what to do. The father wanted his teenage son to go to the city of Uruk and hire a prostitute. The son was confused, but the father kept going. It was obvious this wild man was very powerful and that none were his equals, Except one. There was a famed king in the city of Uruk. The king's name was Gilgamesh. He was stronger than a star from the heavens, the champion of his people, and a massive jerk. His people hated him, but he could help here. All the young man would have to do was go to Gilgamesh and talk about how amazing this wild man was. Then he was to ask the king if one of the temple prostitutes could come along. Her love would overpower the wild man, and start him on the long, confusing road to civility, and non-grass-eating nakedness. The son gathered what meager provisions his father could spare, and began the days-long trek to the city of Uruk. We'll talk about this whole thing, but what the father didn't know was that this man, this wild man named Enkidu, had been created for the express purpose of opposing Gilgamesh. He was the only one who could fight the king, who had become hated by his people, and having a woman come from the city, was the first step in bringing them together in that epic battle. The goddess heard the cries of the people under Gilgamesh, and knew that no one alive could oppose him and humble him, so she dipped her fingers in the mud and came up with a lump of clay. She looked down at the world and dropped the ball of clay in a field. When the clay hit, it was instantly in the shape of a hunched, overly muscular man. In my head, it's like Arnold Schwarzenegger at the beginning of Terminator. But instead of going to hunt Sarah Connor, he just runs wild and free in the fields with a gazelle. That was a few weeks ago. But the goddess knew he would find his way to the city, and to Gilgamesh. And now, the chain of events have been triggered. So, we should also talk about prostitution before we get farther. As far as I can tell, sex played a much more nuanced role in ancient Mesopotamia. The woman that the young trapper was bringing back to his lands would have been a temple prostitute. The act of sex would have been seen as a way to connect Enkidu to one of the goddesses, and thus give him wisdom. These women, prostitutes or the harlots, would have been viewed as the conduits of divinity. The story calls her a harlot, and contrary to the modern connotation and denotation of that word, she's actually a really strong and respected character, because of this strong religious role. The young trapper wasn't worried about finding the wild man when he and the harlot made their days-long journey back to his home territory. Visions of the naked wild man lapping up the water, eating grass, and leaping majestically through the fields like a gazelle haunted his dreams. So, he knew that when he was outside, the hairy nudity was not too far away. And he was right. Minutes later, Enkidu came traipsing through the fields with a gazelle to get a drink from the watering hole. When he got close to the young man, the trapper urgently whispered to the harlot to get naked. He was here, the wild man. She said, oh, the man running with the wild animals and lapping up water like a dog. I don't think I would have noticed. He looked over and she was already naked. Inkidu, the wild man lapping up water from the small pond, also noticed this. And it, uh, sparked some feelings. The harlot held out her hand and Inkidu approached her cautiously like a wild animal. She turned to the young trapper and said that he could leave. She would take it from here. Even though Inkidu had virtually no experience with humans, other than scarring a young trapper for life, with some guidance from the harlot, they were able to figure it out. For six days straight, for the young trapper who just wanted Inkidu out of his land, having that going on for 24 hours a day for six days at his watering hole, was just so much worse. At the end of it, Inkidu remembered his home in the hills and ran off. As he ran, he noticed, for the first time, that running all day was really tiring. Then, Enkidu realized that he had just had a thought. He had never had one of those. And there was another one. And that was just another one. And wow, has running always been this tiring. Enkidu, marveling at his newfound ability to internally vocalize abstract thought, almost didn't notice when he ran up to his gazelle friends. But they did. They knew instinctually, that he wasn't one of them anymore. He was a human. Enkidu's gazelle friends bolted. He chased after them, but he became tired, which might have been a new thing. Enkidu had never really thought about it before. He went to another watering hole and drank, but the water was just stagnant and terrible. He tried munching on grass, but it was bitter, well, grass. What was going on? Also, the fact that he was sitting back noticing that there was a problem was itself a problem. The next morning, he went back to the harlot who was still waiting for him at the young trapper's watering hole. She looked at him with a warm and knowing smile. She said he had become wise. Why did he want to while away with the beasts in the fields? He was a human now. His place was in the city. He sat there and learned of the world outside of his hills, of the great city of Uruk, of Gilgamesh, the ruler there, a man of many moods, which is a great way to subtly describe a temperamental and unpredictable ruler. The more Enkidu learned of Gilgamesh, the less he liked him. Sure, people smelled good in the city, something the harlot kept going on about, and when Enkidu learned what a smell was, he realized he actually smelled horrific. He had been living with the animals for weeks, after all. But back to Gilgamesh, Enkidu said he wanted to go to Uruk, the city. He said he would go and change the old order. He would challenge Gilgamesh. Enkidu was strongest of all. I mean, you're not, the harlot said and you might not want to say that when we get to Uruk, but yeah, let's go and see how this shakes out. If you can't tell, I'm heavily paraphrasing, but that's essentially what she said. Waking up the next day, he found the harlot tearing her clothing in half. She told him it was time to stop behaving like an animal and sleeping in the dirt. She gave him half of her clothes and said that they would start off for Uruk this morning. Enkidu learned what naked was and that he, in fact, was naked. He put on the clothes the harlot could spare. Enkidu said that there was this kid he vaguely remember scaring, like scaring a lot. Some trapper the harlot was with before Enkidu had thoughts? The harlot said, yeah, we're not going to say goodbye to him. I'm pretty sure he never wants to see you again. Enkidu shrugged, and together he and the woman headed off towards Uruk. We'll see that Enkidu, only really being a few months old, Still has a lot to learn about living in society, and that will be right after this. Capital One knows you've got questions about your credit. You may be asking, who's really in charge of my credit score? Or, how does my credit actually work? That's why Capital One created the CreditWise app, so you can check your credit score anytime you want, right in the app. It's free to everyone, Capital One customer or not. In fact, millions of CreditWise users have improved their score by 20 points or more, so download the app for free today. Legal disclaimer, availability depends on presence of credit history from TransUnion. CreditWise is offered by Capital One Bank, USANA. This week's episode is brought to you by Jackthreads.com. When was the last time you ordered clothes online and got to try them on before paying for them? Never, right? Well, that's exactly what Jackthreads.com does. With Jackthreads, you can try out any of their t-shirts, jeans, and more at home for free. And you only pay for what you keep. So, I actually got a blazer off Jack Threads, and it was nice knowing that I could just send it back if it didn't work out. I had seven days to try it out, and it came with a resealable bag and a shipping label. So, shipping it back would have been really easy and free, but I totally kept it. It fit perfectly, and I confirmed the order that night, and that's when they ran all the payment stuff. It was weird and cool to get something and be able to try it on without spending anything. Instead of playing internet roulette and gambling on a new style or size, just use jackthreads.com. I seriously love it. And since I hate going out to shop for clothes and now know that I can try before I buy online, Jack Threads is perfect for me. You can go to jackthreads.com and enter code myths, M-Y-T-H-S when you submit your tryout for 20% off anything you keep. That's jackthreads.com code myths and save 20% on anything you keep. Never buy before you try ever again. Alright, now back to the show. The shepherds were surprised to see a harlot from the temple of Ishtar and an incredibly muscular man wearing an exceptionally fitted loincloth. They walked up to the travelers' camp and introduced themselves, and the shepherds welcomed the travelers to join them. They sat among their sheep and offered Enkidu and the woman a drink. Enkidu jumped up and said, "'Why, thank you, fellow civilized humans.' He picked up a sheep, held her over his head, and and began basically nursing the sheep and drinking her milk. The shepherds watched him, slack-jawed, in confusion and disgust. The woman waited for Enkidu to put down the now-terrified sheep, before explaining to him that this wasn't how normal, civilized humans behaved. They drink from cups, not sheep. Enkidu looked at the goblet. This was all very confusing. For as difficult a time he had with the goblet, Breb was even more foreign to him. He nearly choked on it several times. It was way thicker than the grass he was used to, but finally, he got the hang of it. Over the next several weeks, Enkidu and the woman traveled with the shepherds, as they made their way slowly back to Uruk. The shepherds liked the kind and naive Enkidu, and took him under their wing, to explain the basics of human hygiene, grooming, and social customs. He took his first bath ever, since he had been dropped like a lump of clay weeks ago, and the shepherds gave him clothes to replace his increasingly more weathered loincloth. In return, He caught the wolves and the lions that plagued the shepherds' herds. Enkidu and the woman stayed with the shepherds as they led their sheep across the country. And for months, they slowly moved closer to Uruk. One morning, Enkidu sat with the woman from the city. He could see the sprawl of the city of Uruk, the temple and the ziggurat that rose above it all, the sun was at their back, and it was just starting to rise above the plains and hit the wall. Enkidu could feel it deep in his bones. Upsetting the old order was his destiny. It was what he was made for. They had passed travelers on the road every now and then, but one in particular stopped a barter with the shepherds, and he had a story to tell. He was sullen and grim and angry, and had plenty to say when Enkidu asked him about Uruk. Gilgamesh, the ruler, was a monster. It was rumored that he was the son of the former king, who was a demigod and a goddess, and he knew it. He considered himself the strongest man on earth, and he would destroy anyone who seemed to even remotely be a challenge to him. Also, he apparently demanded the right of prima noctis, where, when someone in the city got married, Gilgamesh would demand the first night with the bride. In fact, tonight was another such night. A noble was getting married, and Gilgamesh had demanded the bride. The people feared revolt and Gilgamesh and just everything. And these were the reasons his people cried out against him. These were the reasons that Enkidu had been made. The traveler said that Gilgamesh was the reason he was leaving the city. If your ruler is so arrogant to think that he has rights to everything, what is the point of building a life? Of even getting married? The traveler knew the world outside the city was dangerous, but he would take his chances in the wilderness, rather than risk facing the many moods of Gilgamesh. The man from Uruk traded for some sheep and continued on, seeking a new life outside of the city. There was no wavering in Enkidu's mind. He would do what he came here to do. He was going to change the old order of things. He was the strongest here. And now, he knew where Gilgamesh would be tonight. A hush had settled over the city of Uruk. As Gilgamesh made his way to the bride's house, His warriors had separated the new husband and wife, though no one would really stand up to him. The man was a demigod who lorded his power over others to prove to himself that he was more than mortal, that he was like his mother, the goddess. He arrived at the bride's house, but there were no guards out front. This was confusing. Then a man filled the doorway. He was so large that he had to duck down to come through. He crossed his hairy arms and stood in Gilgamesh's way, Literally, no one had ever stood in Gilgamesh's way. The vast majority were too terrified, and what happened to the rest was the reason the majority were so terrified. Now, some shepherd from nowhere was standing in the way of the king. Gilgamesh looked at him square in the eye and said, Move. Enkidu did not move. Gilgamesh grabbed Enkidu and tried to force him from the doorway, but Enkidu had been created for the sole purpose of being Gilgamesh's equal, so he didn't budge. Gilgamesh let go of Enkidu, and began walking away. Watching the king in retreat, Enkidu must have thought that destroying the old order of things was pretty easy after all. In his moderately smug self-congratulations, he completely missed Gilgamesh charging at him. Gilgamesh tackled Enkidu, and the pair exploded through the doorway that was too small for either of them, reducing most of it to crumbling brick. When Enkidu regained his wits, he kicked Gilgamesh off of him, and jumped to his feet. Then, the pair began fighting. They burst through brick walls in their fighting, and hit each other with millstones and trowels. People fled the destruction. After the pair leveled their first building, and began hurling chunks of the walls at each other, Gilgamesh flung Enkidu into walls and stables. Enkidu flung Gilgamesh off roofs and down wells. The city shook with their blows, but neither would give the other an inch, or the equivalent ancient Sumerian unit of measurement. They fought and fought, and the people fled. Finally, Gilgamesh planted and grabbed Enkidu by the leg. He wrenched the man from the ground and flung him into a brick home, which immediately crumbled to the ground and on top of him. Then, the city was quiet. Those brave enough to stay in that section of the city saw their king bloody and weary, and waiting to see if the shepherd would rise. There was a shaking in the wreckage of the building, and then a bloody fist erupted from the bricks. There was a grunt and a yell, and the bricks exploded away from Enkidu, standing in the middle of the rubble, equally bloody and tired. The people watching the fight from far off, thought that the pair would rush each other immediately, but they just stood panting and hunched, waiting to catch their breaths, before continuing the fight. A few moments passed with them just standing there, kind of wanting to keep fighting, but very much not wanting to keep fighting. Finally, Gilgamesh spoke, you're really strong. Thanks, Enkidu said, so are you. Gilgamesh paused for a moment, and then said, Hey, want to be friends? Enkidu didn't need to think about it. He would not be able to kill Gilgamesh, that was obvious. Maybe he would upset the old order another way. He allowed himself a small smile. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'd like that, Enkidu said. After some manly hugging amidst the rubble, Enkidu went back to Gilgamesh's palace. And the two became muscly, ancient world BFFs. Gilgamesh changed after Enkidu came to Uruk. Not only did he learn that he wasn't the only special one in the world, but meeting his match, or close to it, brought him down to earth again. He sobered up and stopped his insecure dismemberment of anyone he viewed as a threat. He had been tested against the best the gods threw at him. There was nothing to prove by killing his people. For the same reason, he stopped the premenoctus thing. Life was about more than insecure oppression. He needed to be better than this. Maybe the kind naivete of Enkidu, convinced them that there could be another way. Enkidu was still understanding the full extent of who he was, and what he was meant to do here. One day, when he was talking to his new best friend, Gilgamesh, Gilgamesh told him a dream that he had had. Without even thinking about it, Enkidu told Gilgamesh the meaning, and it confirmed Gilgamesh's worst fears. He told Gilgamesh that the father of the gods had given Gilgamesh his kingship, but Gilgamesh would not have everlasting life. Gilgamesh would die. Gilgamesh had been given the power to do the greatest good or the darkest evil. He could have amazing victories and his name could ring out through the centuries. He could either be light or he could be darkness. He was commanded by the gods in his dreams to not abuse this power, to not abuse his people and to deal justly from now on. Gilgamesh was quiet and thoughtful for days, after Enkidu told him the message from the heavens. He realized that he had lived his entire life in the city. He hadn't done great things, and if he was mortal, time was running out. Also, yeah, it's kind of a drastic change for Gilgamesh to go from bad guy oppressing his people to one of the heroes of our story. He did some detestable things, but moving on, he's truly a different character. He really took the command to be different to heart. Took a psychology class on aging years and years ago and i remembered something called the existential crisis as far as we know humans are the only animals where their very existence can be a problem to them i mean maybe dolphins have these questions but who knows we're confronted with the problems of why do we exist why are we here and what does it all mean the gazelle or enkidu's old rabbit friends by the watering hole did not have these questions they just live their lives until they stop one day enkidu had moved from the thoughtless instinct-driven world of the animal to human, and this was really bumming him out. Not only did he have to deal with the daily anxiety about his own existence, but the prophecies to Gilgamesh made him realize something for the first time. He was going to die someday. He hadn't really thought about it at all. He, too, descended into melancholy. One day, when Enkidu was sitting around in a funk, Gilgamesh burst in the room, smiling for the first time in weeks. He had found it, they could live forever. Well, kind of, I mean, their names would live forever. Same thing, right? In the part of Mesopotamia that this story takes place, there wasn't any sort of timber or metals. To get those, you had to go to the Great Cedar Forest in southern Turkey and Syria. The problem? The land already had settlers, who very much objected to anyone taking their timber, but especially muscly demigods. Oh, and also there was an evil giant, named Humbaba the Terrible, which roughly translates to hugeness, the terrible. Yes, that's awesome. He was, unsurprisingly, huge, but he also breathed fire, and his jaws were death itself. This is what Gilgamesh wanted to do. He wanted to go to the Great Cedar Forest and get the timber to build walls for a city. He wanted to kill hugeness, the giant, so he and Enkidu's names would live on and be talked about in a podcast 4,000 years later. He asked if Enkidu was in. Enkidu said... No, no, absolutely not. That sounds terrifying. Gilgamesh looked at him smugly. Oh, was Enkidu scared? Enkidu said, yes, yes, absolutely. I not only just figured out what death was, but that I will die. And now you want me to go face a fire-breathing giant named Hugeness the Terrible. What did you think I would say? Gilgamesh looked off in the distance to the river, carrying the bodies of the dead out of the city. He said that he knew, even with his greatness, that he would float out from the city with those bodies someday. The tallest man can never touch the heavens. The strongest can never encompass the earth. Gilgamesh said that he had to go to this far off country. Even if he perished in the fight against hugeness, at least he would have done that much with his life. Gilgamesh said that he was going to take a lamb to the god, Shamash, and that he would be leaving as soon as his weapons were cast. It was Enkidu's choice, but Gilgamesh would like the man to come with him. Enkidu watched his friend walk off in the direction of the rising sun. In truth, it only took a couple hours for him to decide. In many ways, Enkidu and Gilgamesh were going through the same thing. Both realized that someday they would die, and they had to make their life worth something now. Enkidu was scared, but he decided to go with Gilgamesh to fight Hugeness the giant, and if they died on the trip, well, maybe their names would live on. Next week, Gilgamesh and Enkidu will fight Hugeness, the fire-breathing giant. But this will start with them overpacking on their trip with over 1,000 pounds of weapons each. So before Creature of the Week, I have a couple of announcements. First, there's a new episode of Career Day out this week. It's another podcast we do. Well, my wife does. If you haven't heard about it, it's about people, their jobs, and most importantly, their stories. This week's episode is amazing. It is seriously one of the best podcast episodes I've ever heard. And I know you're probably thinking, of course he's going to say that, but really, check it out. She talks to a police officer in an area with a high rate of violent crime, professional poker player, and a U.S. combat vet who survived an IED blast. And their stories are really, really good. It's funny, it's sad, it's shocking, I've gone on long enough about it. But if it sounds like something you might be interested in, you can go to careerdayshow.com for more info, or just search for Career Day by Carissa Weiser wherever you get your podcasts. I put a ton of links in the show notes. Seriously, check it out. It's a really good episode. Also, the Myths and Legends store is finally up and running. You can find it at mythpodcast.com slash store. It will redirect you to another site, but that's another site we set up just for the store. So yeah, if that's something you're interested in, check it out. The creature this week is the Bugle Nose from Brittany in France. The Bugle Nose sounds like a creature from Lord of the Rings. And he actually kind of looks like a creature from Lord of the Rings... His name means Night Shepherd, and he is tall, withered, and so hideously ugly that even the animals of the forest will flee from him. If you're in Brittany, working as the sun goes down, you might hear his chilling call coming from the darkness of the forest. If you do, you might be tempted to head inside, away from the forest and the voices in the darkness. If you do, you'll be doing exactly what the Night Shepherd wants you to do. Because, really, this hideous monster, who can kill you with a look, just wants you to take care of yourself, get some sleep, and spend time with your family. Despite his look, terrifying call, and ring-wraithiness, he really just thinks you need a better work-life balance. Stress kills. I mean, not as quickly as the Night Shepherd's face, but it's still hazardous. And yeah, the Night Shepherd isn't evil or mean. He's actually pretty kind, gentle, and deeply lonely. He can't even have a pet, because, like I said, the creatures of the forest all flee from his face. He'll be forever alone, because he's the last of his kind. He mainly keeps to himself in the daytime, but he will call out whenever he sees someone working too hard in the fields after sunset. The Night shepherd can never really have a community or loved ones, but he's determined that you don't take yours for granted. He'll call out from the forest to scare you inside, to get some rest. Also, like I said, one look at him will kill you instantly. So, in addition to being a good guy, self-care monster, he just really doesn't like accidentally killing humans. Like the Squonk, our previous creature of the week. Remember the piglet that dissolved into a pile of its own tears? Well, the Night Shepherd is extremely self-conscious about its appearance. So, in addition to not wanting to accidentally murder people, he just doesn't want people to see how ugly he is. There's nothing you can do for him. He doesn't take offerings or self-help books left on the edge of the forest. The best gift you can give the Night Shepherd is just to live your life. He just wants you to stop working when you're supposed to, at night, and spend time with your loved ones. People who love you and a home you can go to are gifts, and the Night Shepherd wants you to appreciate it. So relax, and don't work so hard. Or the Buglenos might pay you a visit, and literally force you to take a break under the pain of death, because he cares about you. (laughs) That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. Other music is by Pottington Bear and Blue Dot Sessions, and there are links to even more music in the show notes. Thanks again to Jack Threads. When was the last time you ordered clothes online and got to try them on before paying for them? Never, right? Well, Jack Threads lets you try clothes on at home for free. Choose anything you want, try it on, keep what works, and send back the rest. It's a smarter way to shop. Go to jackthreads.com. And enter code myths, M-Y-T-H-S, for 20% off anything you keep. All right, that's it. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.